Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson, and I'm joined by Matthew. How are you doing, Matthew? I'm groovy, sir. Good to see you. Groovy. You know, the groovy. 70s called, and uh, never mind. <laughs> well, there I am on a Sunday morning here in England land. And I'm just about to settle down and edit an episode of Andrew and I having a conversation with Tim O'Neill of History for Atheists. <laughs> and what happens is you drop into my inbox and say, Matthew, I've got something better for you to do. And here I am. Wow. So Tim O'Neill's going to have to wait. Wow. <laughs> okay. I feel bad, but strangely also good that I disrupted Andrew's day. Um, so, that's always a win for me. Um, so. Welcome to Real Life Online, and thank you for joining for you us yet. today. Real Life um, is a church. So that, I felt the spirit move just then. Yes, well, that was the spirit. That was definitely not my finger hitting the wrong button. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, we are not going to ascribe naturalistic explanations to things that happen because today we're talking about miracles. There's a there's a miracle sermon. And um, miracles have been on the brain a little bit. Uh, Justin has been interested in miracles. You just did your show on Unbelievable. I mean, great uh, catch there. You had an interview with I'm Justin. I'm still recovering from that. I've got bruises all over me. That was, a, that was a hard, hard, hard thing. This I've been lying in a darkened room all week recovering from that terrible, terrible pounding I received. Yeah, I hope that uh, Justin is covering the uh, cost of counseling. Uh, after that, because that that was a that was that was oh, we're going to get a chance to talk about that at some point. You did fantastic. Um, your first showing, you know, I've I've seen a lot of people on Unbelievable for their first time, and they were a little bit rough. You were not rough. <laughs> you were you were you were so much better on your first show than Andrew and I were. <laughs> so well, that's very gracious of you to say, sir. No, I kind of hate you for it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's my Englishness. I couldn't help it. So it was part of me that because we're going to try and get Mike onto Still Unbelievable. We're just working that out. So I, I do have to be a little bit measured in what I say. I, I didn't especially enjoy the book. And part of me was a little bit heckled up and riled. And I wanted to go into that show punching and punching hard because there was lots I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the the lights came on and my English nature came over and I couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> the cup of tea engaged and there I was. What oh chap? How are you? <laughs> Is that how that works? Yeah. Because as it happens, in your honor, I'm drinking a cup of tea. Well, there you go. We're going to have a very pleasant uh, conversation, sir. Cheerio. Um, <laughs> oh, very well done. Very well done. More of that, please. <laughs> no. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and get this video started, and we're going to see what this guy says. I got to tell you, I'm just going to say this up front. I don't know what he's going to say. I haven't watched this video all the, all the way through. I've just skimmed a little bit at a time. Christian's work way too hard for this topic though I, I will just say this right now uh if he starts reaching for philosophy i'm out i don't we're talking <laughs> miracles man you don't need to to cite philosophy just do a damn miracle um it's so easy for you guys just 
just shut up and do the thing. You don't have to prove anything intellectually. <laughs> okay. Brain can be disengaged. Just do the damn thing. Um, they never do. So let's see if uh, anything, let, let's see what he reaches for. Church for real people just like you. And we want you to know that God is crazy about you. Please take a moment right now and click on the share button and share this experience with your friends and family. This week, we are jumping into our new series called Miracles, where we will be examining miracles that Jesus performed. When we connect our lives to him in his endless power, nothing is impossible. Today, Pastor Jay looks at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and helps us see when we take what God has given us and we lay it at the feet of Jesus, anything can happen. Thanks again for joining us today and let's get ready for Real Life Online. Right, can we just pause there before we get going? I'm and beginning to be really thankful that I shaved this morning. Come on, can I just talk about that hair? Because that hair needs a miracle. You know, what did he put in it? I'm, I'm, I'm more disturbed by that than the idea of there being justification for the miracle claims of Jesus in the Bible. Can we just not talk? Can we talk about the hair for 30 minutes instead? I don't, I don't I feel think there's going to be much more, much more hilarity and much more um, productiveness. I don't, about I don't think we can. I don't, I don't believe we can. Although I, I must say, uh, when I first saw, and this is, we're never going to see this guy again. Um, we, we shouldn't have seen him before, but um, it was off-putting. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was really off-putting, and I don't mean to be shallow. Um, I mean, I guess I am what I am, but um, I was, uh, you know, I was a little bit uh, nervous. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I work on facial hair a little bit. And um, is it stick on? Maybe that's what it is. He's, he's gone to the, um, the, uh, the theater shop and got some stick on stuff. It, it he, is. He really looks like me, and he just swaps it out for different videos that he does. It is disturbing. <laughs> oh, so. maybe that's what I should do. Uh, put still unbelievable onto YouTube and get different wigs for each show. <gasps> oh man, that could be awesome. But don't worry. Uh, the guy who's actually about to do the sermon is a very attractive man. <laughs> so, uh oh. So it's gonna, it's gonna be good. Here we go. Are we gonna be distracted? <laughs> maybe. When heaven touches us. Is, is, is that what I just saw? When heaven touches us. I don't like it when heaven touches <laughs> me there. I've been touched by the spirit. <laughs> of the spirit has stopped doing that because of political correctness. Hey, good to see everyone. Woo. New series today, Miracles. This is a good one. I want to welcome all our locations around Central Florida. I'm so glad you guys are joining us for this because God's doing a new thing at Real Life. And uh, it's, it's been happening in me. Okay, I'm just going to start right there. God's doing a new thing. I hate it when Christians talk like this. Um, God, First of all, your church, I don't know how long it's been there. Um, God's doing a new thing. First of all, how do you, how do you know that? Where do you get that from? Uh, if this thing is valuable, why didn't he do it before? I don't understand this kind of language. Um, and he's going to do some more of this. Um, but it, it's, it already kind of puts me on edge when preachers start talking like that. Yeah. And I want it to happen in you 
as well. I'll just catch you up to speed a little bit. I, some of the things that God's just been sharing with me is that God, God has been sharing things with you. He had a cup of coffee with God first thing this morning before coming on. That's what it is. They had a bro chat. I, I don't understand. I don't, when I was, so let me just be uh, full disclosure. When I was a Christian, I wasn't the kind of God is talking to me and sharing with me things, Christian. Uh, our denomination didn't do that sort of thing. And so this has always been off-putting uh, to me. And it's, this is very prevalent in uh, charismatic Pentecostal uh, churches. I'm not entirely sure what kind of ministry this guy has. I would wager just from the first few seconds that this is some kind of um, charisma church. Um, because they're always talking about how God is talking to them and telling them to do this and leading them to do that as, as if their day-to-day -day life is, you know, three times a day, God says, no, not that bagel, uh, over to the left, get the everything bagel. Yes. Um, I've it, been in the congregation for talks like this, which started exactly this way. So I've been in that kind of Pentecostal environment. And when you're there and you're engaged in the belief, this kind of start and this kind of intro is really, really exciting, especially you've got the band playing over in one side and you've got people cheering. You've just been doing 20 minutes of worship songs and you're hyped up and then someone comes on and starts talking about this. You don't sit down, you stand up and you're, this gets you excited. Mm -hmm. This gets you engaged and this makes you susceptible to whatever's coming next. It's, it's so off-putting to me. Look, I've preached 10,000 sermons and God has never told me shit. Um, I, <laughs> I studied my ass off, um, and you know, every week, uh, or every time I'm doing a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, I had to think about what I wanted to talk about. God might have been more helpful to me <laughs> by giving me some sermon notes. I have no idea what this means. I don't know what Christians hear when they hear a person talking like this, but it's already, I just feel put off. He wants us to be a church right, where we allow him and invite him in to do what only he can do. He wants every church to do that, right? <laughs> What's special Amen. about yours? <laughs> I mean, it's special revelation. God wants us to be a good church. <laughs> and he wants us to experience and encounter him in, uh, in life-changing ways. Our vision's always been changed lives. And you know, when you have an encounter with God, it changes your life forever. So that's what we want. Part of that, because when God shows you things, he also shows you what isn't right, is that some of us have built boxes. Church people love boxes, don't we? We love to put God in a box and say, okay, God, you can have this much, but not this much. You can work in this area of my life, not this area. Uh, Lord, I believe you to do that, but not this. And what God is saying is time to break the boxes. Time to, time to throw the boxes in the recyclables and let them come and pick them up and take them away because I don't want to work in a box. I want, I want you to allow me in to the whole thing. And I think part of this is also okay, just apropos of nothing. Oh, this in is the, so familiar language. I've heard it, this kind of thing so, so often. It is, but I, I must say, as he's talking about putting God in boxes, he literally commanded the Jewish people to make a box so that he could live in it. <laughs> so the Ark of the Covenant is literally a God box. <laughs> just, just putting that out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never appreciated that nuance before. Nice one. So, uh, there are probably some of us who have stopped believing that the impossible is possible. 
And, and we've maybe come to a place in our life where we're just like, we're focused on what we can do, but not what he can do. And, and what I want to encourage you to do as we start this series is just come to God fresh and new and with like a childlike faith. Like, all right, God, you know how I got here, but I don't want to stay here. And so I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe you can do what you say you can do. Nothing is impossible. All right, I want to pray that for us right now. Let's pray together. God, thank you for miracles. I want to thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You didn't just do miracles. You still do miracles. And, and a lot of us need them. And, and we, we don't want to just hear a sermon on it, Lord. We want to actually experience it. And so we just invite you into our lives and into this church to do what only you can do. And uh, thank you. Thank you that as we jump into your word, it's living and active and it comes to life in us. And so, Lord, move in your church, move in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boom. Right, We're off to we, a great start, right? Can we hold it there? So this whole thing is premised on the idea. Oh, nice fist bump um, on the idea that nothing is impossible. But if nothing Actually, is impossible, I think, that's, I think that's the black power symbol. he tried to do it but he kind of missed somewhere if if nothing is impossible and god can do anything why does god do so little i hope he talks about that uh because that is definitely one of the questions on my plate um for this so at the end if we are disappointed and he doesn't talk about this we will (laughs) Um, yes so um (laughs) We're talking here, what we are, we're the middle of February, we're a few days after those devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, which are completely and utterly dominating the news at the moment. And there I am having my morning coffee this morning, because it's what, it's 11am now here in Blighty. I'm having my morning coffee watching the news this morning, and they've got, they're digging people out of the rubble. And this is very rare for UK news, but even the TV presenters are talking about the miracles of taking people out of rubble who've been buried under that rubble for four, five, even six days. At one point, it was a young child. They, they caught her a baby. I'm not sure if she was technically a baby, but we're talking that kind of age, toddler, mm-hmm. not not walking on them, alive out of the rubble after four days. Now, that's staggering. That's amazing. How does a child that young survive that long? trapped in that kind of scenario amazing absolutely amazing and the word miracle has been bounded around for that kind of event and part of me is a little bit offended by the overuse of that word to describe some of that a true miracle would be the building not collapsing under that building one person surviving when from a building collapse when tens maybe even hundreds have died in that very same building collapse is not a miracle a few people surviving when what we now over twenty-five thousand people or is it over thirty thousand people i think are now dead and the estimate is that that death toll is going to double a few people being pulled out of the rubble after almost a week when that many people have died is not a miracle come on if god could if nothing is impossible for this god why have so many people died this week I feel that we're going to come back to this subject. I I feel you're right, too. I mean, I I started having this sensitivity uh, when things like um, there's a sole survivor when a 787 fat boy stuffed with 400 people crashes and one person survives and everyone talks about the miracle 
of the survival. 399 people just died screaming. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm working on my blood pressure. Yeah. And and today, Miracle Series, John chapter 6 is the miracle I want us to focus on first. It's the feeding. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6. And, uh, you know, of course, what we call a miracle, Jesus calls business as usual. It's just what he does. What is supernatural to us comes naturally to him. And so he does miracles and he's like, whatevs, no big deal, basic. But we're like, whoa, what was that? And and we're going to experience one of those today. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side or the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. I've been to that mountainside, beautiful area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and and where this miracle probably took place. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat. He asked this, check this out. He asked this only to test him for he, uh, God bless you. It just wouldn't have been right to let that go without saying that we're in church. Okay. He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Stop for a second because I have a problem with this. Yeah, can we stop there as well? Yes. (laughs) Hang on. Did he use the word basic at the beginning of that introduction? Yes, he was saying that, you know, what is amazing for us is basic for God. Oh, I thought he was trying to use basic in the terms of um, uh, ex- Gen X uh, hipster kind of thing. Okay, for him. Yeah. Maybe I'll make my old, my old brain uh, past that wrong. So that bit there that he's just pointed out, you no, know, he did, he said this to test him for you already. That is what happens when people insert these stories into the text like this. That is clear post hoc editing that is going to be that that kind of phrasing there they didn't know at the time that sorry let's assume for a moment this was a real event it wasn't but let's go with it for the moment when you're writing about it afterwards you throw that kind of thing because you're now interpreting jesus's actions by your own biases and you go oh he tested him he didn't really mean it etc yeah yeah so then you, you go go and put that in this is a clue that these kinds of stories are written afterwards. It's as if you've been uh, listening to Red Letters. You guys know Red Letters, right? Skeptics and Seekers uh, is is the free version of what I do, but I also do a, a paid version. Uh, it's patreon.com slash redletters. We've been talking about Jesus, uh, my tagline, where we discuss all things Jesus. You can get a free copy of the book, Red Letters. Sorry about this commercial, man. You just opened it up for me. I can't help it. I can't help it. Um, so, um, the, yes, uh, in fact, this is one of the one of the clues that you can use when you're reading a, a piece of a document. And let's say you're not sure what genre it is. Uh, there's something called the omniscient narrator. This is this is the narrator that knows everything. Um, the, he knows things that other characters don't know. He th- knows things that are impossible to know. And so when when a narrator, when a storyteller tells you something like that, you know that they're not talking about 
something historical because they're not mind readers. <laughs> and so this is this is an omniscient narrator uh, technique where the writer of the story, John in this case, tells you what Jesus is thinking at the time. Uh, he's, he's trying to give you some context to clue the audience in on something that no one in that situation would have otherwise known. So, uh, good catch. Jesus is asking trick questions. Didn't it just say that Jesus asked him this only to test him? I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on, Jesus. We're already not that smart, right? You call us sheep. You know that. I mean, how many encounters does he have with his disciples where he's like, guys, are you kidding me? So, so you're already God, and we're clearly not, and now you're asking trick questions? That's just not fair. So he's going to do this bit for a little while. I'm just going to sip some tea while this happens. If I, if I walk out and back, don't worry about it. I'm, we're not missing anything. It's not, it's not only not fair that Jesus does it, it's not fair that he creates women in his image. <laughs> Guys, I, are you with me here? Okay. Because this is one of the ways we know that women are, are, are more like Jesus, I guess, because y'all do this to us. And I don't understand because I'm just a guy. And if you want to know an answer, you just ask me a question and I'll tell you. But I don't understand trick questions. Jesus coming at me with trick questions. My wife coming at me. Ladies, you'll do this. Uh, girlfriend, wife, guys, you're sitting there. And what will she do? She'll be like, point to a supermodel and she'll say, isn't she beautiful? And then look right at you because you know it's a test. You can't say yes. I'm you know that'll end in a bad place, here. but you also... I, that was my first uh, thought when I first heard this, too. This is one of the few parts of it that I've heard. Um, I don't... It, it, this is... It's, it's kind of 70s, 80s, maybe 90s. Yeah, but it's okay moment. because he's comparing the women to Jesus, so he's not really downing on the women. Right. Right. It's... Um, I, I hmm. uh, right. So it's cringe. It's cringy, um, and it should have been cringy to his audience. It should have been cringy to him. His manager. But the women are said, loving it. Can you hear that laughter in the background? The women uh, yeah, are but, loving it. Yeah, but church women are used to uh, being uh, treated, say, differently uh, than men, as if they were from, say, Venus, and men were from Mars, or some shit like that um i've read this by the way um so uh, yeah it's it's cringy it's not going to stop being cringy <laughs> so uh just strap in can i go back to editing my tim o'neill podcast uh, look i'm i'm playing candy crush you can't say no because then you're lying <laughs> isn't she beautiful ah, trick question right and, and women will ask us things like what are you thinking what are you what are you thinking about and you're like, okay, no way I can get this one wrong because the only person that knows what I'm thinking about is me. And so this has to be the right answer. What are you thinking about? Nothing. <laughs> That's impossible. You can't think about nothing. You have to be thinking about, I, I, no, I just was actually. I was enjoying it too till you interrupted. But like, okay, fine. What were you thinking about before that? Pretty sure I wasn't thinking about anything then either. Well, how about before that? Well, before that, I was trying not to think about the supermodel that you pointed out, okay? These trick questions. I can't answer them. You know, I, um, how, how do I look in this new red dress? You know, do you like this? How, how do I look? I'm like, I, red. You look red, right? Because I'm thinking this is a trick question. No, do, but do I look good? Guys, that's an easy one, right? Of course, you look amazing. You're just saying that because you think that's what I want to hear. <laughs> so confused. 
trick questions, man. Uh, does this dress make me look fat? Run, right? You can't answer some of these questions. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you know, it's bad enough that our wives do it and ladies do it, but Jesus now, he's asking trick questions. Okay, I think we're beyond this moment, but Skittles. <laughs> I'm not looking for sponsors, but <laughs> contract the rainbow. Um, I, I'm a diabetic, but I got to tell you, I will die on the hill of Skittles. <laughs> so, they're, they're just Ride that rainbow, things. man. Ride that rainbow. Ride, Ride the, the rainbow. rainbow. Donkey. <laughs> Sorry, you're, 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 you're fucking up my, uh, my sponsorship here. <laughs> Hump the rainbow. I mean, I don't know what. <laughs> that was wrong. I'm editing that out. No one's ever going to hear that. Um, it's so hard. It's hard to edit video. I'll be honest with you. Um, so, if if we have to acknowledge this long slide into cringe humor, I I will just say, my wife has never asked me such a question. So I'm very fortunate. Um, if if my wife, we have this kind of relationship. If she does show off a new piece of clothing and asks me what I think, I will just tell her what I think. She understands that I am socially awkward and I don't give a damn. So I will just say, of course it makes you look fat. I thought that's what you were going for. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to, why the hell would you have bought that if you weren't trying to look fat? <laughs> so, no, no, okay with that. I like fat, so uh, more power to us. Uh, but <laughs> sure, um, you know she she likes to cook. She cooks for me. She cooks for me. She cooks for me. She can wear what she and, likes if she's going to cook for you. I look. I appreciate every meal, but there are times when I have to say, "Yeah, this is not edible." <laughs> You, you, you have emptied a salt box in this thing. This is not. I can't. I'm eating a bowl of cereal. This we can't. We can't do this. I'm ordering pizza. I'm sorry. So, but here's the thing. She's so good. Ninety percent of the time that I am just effusive uh, with praise, and and so she can trust me when I am praising her. I never have to lie to her to make her feel good about herself. She's great. And so it's rare that she lays a turd and what she does, I just tell her. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's, she's just brutally honest with me too. So, I mean, it's, it's our, our relationship is fine. I don't understand this, this kind of, humor that says oh this you know your wife is manipulating you into fishing for a couple i'm sure that some people do that um i am fortunate that that is not yeah. my experience at all <laughs> this whole talking about wives interjection here feels like padding to puff out a sermon which probably had very little going for it in the first place it's a 32 minute presentation and that includes the, that's the how many more of these interludes are there going to be i don't know i'm waiting to get to some miracles <laughs> man let's, let's see what we got right so Poor Philip. so jesus is testing them yeah okay yeah. yeah carry on right he asked this only to test him he already knew what he was going to do and and so 
what we don't know, all right, because Jesus is questioning Philip. Interesting that he picks Philip. I think he picks Philip because Philip's from this area. So it's like, okay, this is your hometown, bro. How are we going to do this? Where, where does a dude get food for 20,000 people around here? That's what we find out. The crowd was 5,000 men, uh, possibly up to 20,000 people. We're not going to be able to solve this problem. How don't do we know, know what that? the right answer is. How, how do it's, we actually know that? They, they, he's just saying, oh, they only mo- must have only counted the men. Therefore, we're going to multiply it by four. Yeah, so. Every man brings two wives and a child or two wives and a slave, three wives and a concubine. Uh, that's pretty much how we do it. Uh, yeah, because the the general practice is only counting men. But I would say that you've got a bigger problem than that because no one's counting the crowd at all. Um, I don't know if you recall, uh, this was an American thing, a particularly American thing. Uh, one of the uh, black leaders, uh, I don't know if it was Jesse Jackson or I can't remember who it was. Um, they did, they sponsored something called a million man march. I don't think it was Jesse Jackson, but this million man march, they marched on the white house who was, I think George Bush was, uh, Bush two was in office at the time, something like that. I don't, I don't recall all the details. Uh, and the million man march, uh, got a lot of publicity and, you know, a lot of people in the, the, uh, the capital area and, um, you know, they, had videos of it and the the leader uh you know boasted you know we we got our million men uh but further uh uh look at the film uh and and you know actual work trying to figure out how many people there were is maybe 200,000 <laughs> so um you know 200,000 people becomes a million because million is just a marketing number at that point. Someone calls for a million people, a couple hundred thousand people show up. No one's counting heads. No one's counting registration. It's just, yep, looks like a million. It's a million. Got a million. Shut up. And, and so I suspect that even if this event happened, there's no reason to believe that there were 5,000 men. Uh, because when religious people talk about the numbers of people that show up, it's seldom a real number. And I doubt that this would have been any exception. Exactly. And I think there's a bigger point in here in the historicity. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Yeah. In the historicity of this event, is that it's generally understood that these big preaching events that Jesus allegedly did are actually an amalgamation of multiple sayings joined together into a sermon and they just made it into one big event but the big event actually never happened they just used it as a device to get loads of these sayings together into one location and this town village whatever it was that uh, he would have been visiting wouldn't have had that many people in it so what did the entire countryside did the entire region abandon all of their villages and come just onto this village doubt it yeah that's a good point it it simply not only did it not happen i don't think it could have (laughs) happened but you know it's it's the story that we have to evaluate um i'm sure there's going to be a miracle in this sermon somewhere trick question i mean i'm assuming it was something like well sir you know to feed a crowd this size it would take a miracle but miracles are your specialty. That, w- that would be a good line in the Bible, right? You could almost insert that and go, that's the right answer. We don't know what the right answer was. We do know what Philip's answer was. This is interesting. 
In, in verse number seven, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, this tells us a little something about Philip. You got those number crunchers? Any number crunchers here? Some of you, the analyst, your brain is wired to solve problems and you need data. You go, okay, oh, oh, there's a problem. Hold on, crunch, slide rule, you figure it out. Philip is that kind of guy and he's like, okay, let me run some numbers. You're saying we, we got to feed this crowd and, and he comes up with that it would take more than a half a year's wages, more than, not exactly half a year's wages, not all the way to a year's wages. You know these people, some of you are these people and we love you but your heart liveth. So, um, <laughs> but check this out because there's another. Okay, that was almost funny but here's the thing, Phil, Philip is not actually number crunching. Okay, Let, just giving this story all it's worth. This is, this is just hyperbole. It would be as if you ask me, and I would say, man, it would take more money than the entire audience uh, of skeptics and seekers makes in a year. I don't even know how much money uh, <laughs> the audience makes in a year. But, you know, it's a, it's a hyperbolic way of saying it's more than we got. <laughs> and, and so it seems like he's literalizing this as if to say Philip did some math here to come up with this. And this is just a, a crazy off-putting way of reading this story. Even if you're a Christian, this is nuts. So David, quick question here in this interlude. <clears throat> Did you believe this story lit happened literally when you were of course, a preacher? Of course. Uh, I was a nut job. But the, no. the thing is, I don't think I believed that it was actually 5,000 people. I had, I had a problem with that number even then, and I didn't credit this this nonsense about the wages at all because it just seems like hyperbole to me. But I, I took the story as happening, just not these details. And that right. may have made and, me a bad Christian, but I, I, these details always washed over my head. Okay. And what about the 4,000, which is elsewhere? Did you believe that that was a separate additional event or just a poor retelling of this one? I believed both things at different part of my life. So uh, younger, I believed that, that it was just one event being retold. But later, I realized, no, the, the writer really intends this to be two events. So okay. uh, I think there are ways of reading it uh, as either way. But I, I think that it is meant to be two separate events intentionally. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, there's some there's some narrative value in it being two events. Personality type. Another of his disciples, Andrew. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So you. So this is another part of the story where I was always a little bit curious about. It. I didn't necessarily say it wasn't true. I'm just thinking. Why is it that the only person out here who has any food at all is a boy? And why does he have, you know, as much as he has? I'm not entirely sure. What's that all about? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a weird detail, isn't it? And whose yeah. boy was he? Was he just lost or was he <clears throat> looking for his parents and Philip accosted him because he was trying to deliver food to his dad who never got it? Or, right. What's they, going it's, on here? It's not a family. It's not a man is just a kid with a basket of you know too many fish and too much bread for him to eat while no one else seems to have any food 
Let's take this kid's exactly. food. I don't. I don't. I've never understood that aspect of the story. It's just it's one of those head scratchers. Let's just read it and move on because that's not the point yeah. kind of thing. And uh, I have to confess to some embarrassment here because I did exactly that. I read the detail and I moved on. I never paused to question over it. I'm pretty sure I heard somebody talking about it in a sermon and expounding on that detail and speculating, but I can't remember much of the detail. I never actually really started to critically analyze these kinds of weird, odd, nuanced details in these kinds of stories until I was deconstructing. As a Christian, it was always face value, literal, move on, mm -hmm. and never actually stopped to challenge what it was I was actually reading. And I wish as a Christian I had actually properly thought about it and challenged this. So I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because it's a peeve of mine. One thing that really bugs me when people talk about people like me who've deconstructed is we get accused of not understanding the Bible properly or not taking the Bible seriously enough. My deconstruction period was when I took these kind of stories more seriously than mm -hmm. I ever had in the entirety of my Christian life until that point. Mm -hmm. And it was taking it more seriously that got me to where I am now, not this kind of nonsense. This, this is exactly right. And uh, Christians, please listen to this. Please hear this so that we can have better conversations. There may have been a time in our lives when we were faithful, happy Christians, when we didn't take this stuff seriously. Most of the people that I know who are faithful, happy Christians didn't actually read their Bibles and didn't take any details seriously because they know them anyway. Um, we only started taking this stuff seriously when we started having doubts. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. I got to get back to the basics. I gotta, I've got to read this and be serious about it. I've got to study this. I've got to pray about uh, knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Now, I was a preacher at the time. I took this stuff uh, seriously, but you know, you don't have to, I can tell you most of the members of any congregation that you're in don't. And part of the challenge of any preacher is to get your congregation to take it, you know, halfway as seriously as you do. Uh, but people just don't because they have lives and they're not sitting around, uh, thinking about why is this a boy with this fish and bread? No one, no one is asking that question. And so the only time you start asking that question as a general rule is when your faith starts to falter and you were trying to regain your faith and you go back to the Bible, back to the basics, and you start buying books and reading authors and asking questions and studying genuinely. Do not tell us that it was because of insufficient knowledge of the Bible. Uh, if it's insufficient knowledge of the Bible, blame your God because he saw that we were studying our goddamn asses off and he could have given us some of that vaunted spiritual insight that we were so desperately seeking got philip the analyst you've got andrew the action guy isn't that like if you're married there's one of you there's there's both of you in the marriage and that's why you're here for counseling so two different personality types the one is trying to think it through and he's crunching the numbers he comes to a conclusion can't be done it's impossible it would take way too much and we don't have enough the other guy takes action where he's thinking about it he's doing something about it he starts confiscating lunch boxes hey little boy come here come here come here he's an usher right you know this guy and, and, and so he's trying to solve the problem on his own comes to the same conclusion can't be done there's not enough because what are they missing 
Jesus, right? For those of you who were afraid to answer, it's almost always the right answer. It's church, okay? Even if you say Jesus and it's the wrong answer, it's still the right answer. So yeah, they're missing Jesus. The answer to the question is the one asking the question. And so what they failed to factor in is God in the flesh is with them. And John actually tells us they had already seen him do miracles. It's not like this is the first miracle. They'd already, they've just come from uh, an experience where he's performing signs and doing healing so they know that he can. I think the problem is that, that they are more focused on what they can't do than what Jesus can do. Okay, so since you brought up the first point about the omniscient narrator, I'm just going to just throw this one into, and this is a, another way that you know you're not reading history. Uh, characters don't behave like humans. <laughs> they don't behave like uh, normal people at all. So, yes, I, I would agree with him here. They've seen Jesus doing miracles. Their natural response after just coming off of some of these things is, well, God, magic, some bread. <laughs> That's what they would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have forgotten that quickly that they could do miracles. I, uh, I make this point often, uh, with the resurrection, the moment, uh, Jesus is killed. They've seen Jesus raise the dead, by the way. Um, the moment Jesus is killed, they forgot that they were raising dead people just yesterday. They forgot that they could cast out demons just yesterday. They're hiding from the, the authorities because they forgot all of the magic at their fingertips just yesterday. No normal person would forget that. Not one of them secretly went to the grave just to see if he would rise when he said he did. They had forgotten everything. They're not behaving like humans. And that's not realistic. This is one of the ways you know you're being told a story and not being read history. You with me? Because I'm going to take a guess. You're doing this in your life right now. In some area with some problem, some situation that you're dealing with and struggling with, instead of bringing it to Jesus, you're busy working it out on your own. Okay, one more brief interruption. I'm sorry. You see, this is the difference between story and real life. In the story, all of these people saw Jesus doing miracles. In real life, we haven't seen that. So we haven't forgotten about the miracle that happened yesterday. The reason we are working at the problem ourselves is because time after time we laid our problems at the feet of Jesus the miracle worker and nothing happened. So we are actually doing what real life people would do. We're trying to solve the problem ourselves. And we've given up on the idea that Jesus is going to somehow magic this problem away. But it's not working out. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But we say, let me try. God says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We say, I can handle this. I got this. Let me figure it out. And just like Philip and Andrew, we fail the test. Because it is a test. It's a setup to see if we'll look up. Because check this out, miracles always start with a mess. Have you noticed that? Miracles always start with a problem that can't be solved. So some of you came here today and you're like, whoa, 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 man, I, my life is a mess. I just, uh, I'm not going to be able to make it. And, and while you think there's no hope, I just want to tell you, you're in the first stage of a miracle, right? Because miracles always start with a mess. They start with a problem that can't be solved. Looking at my finances, 
and just going, I, I, don't, I can't pay this this much with this much, right? You ever been there? I'm trying to pay all these bills, but I don't have enough money. And so I'm working through this. But it, unless something happens, unless that job comes through, or that promotion or that check, and we're out of options, maybe an addiction. And I've been doing this thing my whole life, and I've tried to change, and I can't. And so why would this time be any different? I just don't have the power to make it work. You know, maybe in your marriage, there, there aren't enough counselors in the world to fix this. And I'm at the end of my rope. We call them irreconcilable differences. We just can't work it out. Maybe some of you wish your problem was marriage because you're single and you've been waiting and you've been praying and you just haven't found that person. And so you're ready to settle for someone that is definitely not God's will for your life. Maybe it's some pain that, that just doesn't seem to want to go away. Or maybe it's your kids and you've tried everything, but they're just not where they need to be. Or this divorce is killing me. But listen, miracles always start with a mess. With some problem that I can't solve. And so I'm doing the math. I'm running the numbers. It's not working out. And I'm out of options because I'm looking at the size of the problem. And I'm looking what I have to deal with it. And it's hopeless. Okay. Um, see, this is, this is a setup for blame the, blame the victim. Um, we'll blame the disciples because they knew that Jesus could do miracles. But they wanted to solve it themselves. We'll blame them. And now it's... Will blame you. You're trying to solve a problem yourself that Jesus said he would solve. Do you think for a moment that we haven't all trusted God at some point to, to take care of something impossible? Do, do you think for a moment that I haven't looked at my finances when I was a Christian and thought, I can't do anything about this. I'm going to turn this over into the hands of God. You know what that gets you? A credit score lower than 600. That's what that gets you. Um, that gets you evicted is what that gets you. Um, it gets you fired is what that gets you. We have all tried it. Uh, and we have all failed at it, which is why when, when messes come up, we try to solve them ourselves because we know that there's no magical solution. Do you think that I wouldn't rather sit on my lazy ass and let God solve my problem. If there was any hint that that could be done, I would happily sit down and watch Looney Tunes and not worry about it. Let go and let God. He's, he's good. He's in control. We've done that. So what are you talking about, man? Um, I, don't, I don't understand what he is, what he is imagining in this scenario. Is he imagining that his congregation hasn't trusted Jesus for miracles and their lives are still a mess? I don't understand where he's coming from here. This is where you come in and explain where he's coming from, Matt. <laughs> I don't know where he's coming from. That's a, that's a cue, okay? That's a setup. <laughs> and you've got to come in and spike the ball at that point. Oh, <laughs> White men can't jump. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. That's... But what we're missing is the same thing the disciples were missing, right? That the, the answer is actually in the question. Check this out. I read it, but we missed it. Let's go back to verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy? Hold on. What did he say? Where shall we buy? 
Okay, notice Jesus never said, hey, Philip, here's the problem. How are you going to solve it on your own? He never said you. He said we, that this is a you and me thing. Because if I remain in you and you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But it wasn't supposed to be a you thing. It's supposed to be a we thing. How are we going to do this together? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And so we're going to pair up like two oxen. I'm going to show you a picture because some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That, that yoke, Jesus says, here's the thing. It's not a you thing. I want to come alongside you. And so there's me and Jesus right there. He's the strong, good looking one. It, it, we're going to pair up together because you can't do it, but we can. And when I turn my me problems into we problems, that's how miracles start, Right? When I invite him in to do what only he can do, the answer is in the question. How are we going to do this? God's plan isn't me, it's we. Just a quick uh, theological question for you. Um, I, I think I know how I would have answered this question as a Christian. I'm not sure that my answer will be the same today. But he, he's doing this image of uh two oxen yoked together and one is you and one is jesus and you're both pulling hard at the plow uh, i know many preachers who would have said that's heretical it's not a yoke with you and jesus pulling hard at the plow it's you sitting in the seat and jesus pulling the plow because jesus doesn't need your help to solve your problem your, your problem isn't solved because of your effort you know jesus doesn't pick up where your effort fails. It's all Jesus. You trust Jesus all the way or none of the way. So you're not, you know, it's not Jesus plus you. It's Jesus. So how, how would you answer that? Is that is that a correct image it's or not? definitely not how I understood it. I don't know about correct, but it's definitely not how I, um, the, the that yoke thing, and that yoke looked really heavy and uncomfortable on those uh, bulls in that image. But then there is that word of Jesus elsewhere about my burden is light. So Jesus obviously, or somebody, whoever wrote those, implied those words to Jesus was obviously aware that that yoke thing is uncomfortable for the bulls. So put some caveat in there that Jesus wasn't going to be that, but it was that tied together. And the tied together thing is not for the benefit of Jesus. It's a benefit of us. Jesus is working with us, not because he needs our help, but because we need his help. So that would have been the way in which it would be, it was taught to me in the way I understood it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, comments, folks. Skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. And, and I'm with you, he says. And so when I take a we problem and I make it a me problem, I'll fail that test every time. I think, okay, so you guys know I'm not the best mechanic. Right. Have we established that? I think we have. In case you forgot two words, grease gun. There you go. Yep. Uh-huh. You were there. Um, grease gun. So we'll go back that. If you missed that, you just missed it. I don't know. Go online. You, you need to know. But recently, okay, so I got teenagers. Teenagers need cars. And so I'm not a great mechanic. And so now we have a problem. Recently, my son Elijah needed front struts for his car. And that's not a me thing, right? He comes to me, he's like, hey, I need struts for my car. Friend, help me figure out what it was. And that's not a me thing. That's not an Elijah thing. And so he's asking mechanics. He's getting prices. He's getting quotes. Best quote he got was about $550, which is too much for a teenager. Probably a good price, but 
He doesn't have it. And so he starts scrambling. He's putting things into motion, goes on Amazon, and he finds the parts he needs for $155. Thank you, Amazon, right? There, $550 versus $150. That's, we can't do it. Now maybe we can. He orders the parts. We get the parts. Um, they, they drop them off. I see the lady walking away. I was like, hold on. She's like, yeah. I was like, they're still in the box. We need them on the car. Like that's... They dropped off the parts, but we still have a problem because now we have the parts and we have the car, but we have to put them on. And all my tools are pink and Robin. You were right about the padding. Says I can't use them. <laughs> so not sure because it's not a me thing. We got to fix this problem. Then I'm at church. It's so cool how God works. And I run into my friends, Bill and Terry. Hadn't seen them in a while. We're talking in the lobby of the church and Bill and Terry are brothers. And they said, hey, you know, we got a shop, right? And I'm like, what? What kind of shop? And like, like an auto shop. Uh, with a lift and with all these tools and we, we love to work on cars and it's at Bill's house. It's right across the street from you. If you ever want to come over and work on a car, if you ever need anything for any cars, just come on by and we'll knock it out. I'm like, how about tomorrow? <laughs> what a gift, right? And so we get over there and, uh, and Bill and Terry shop. There's a picture of Elijah working on his car. Isn't that a great pic? See a young man working on his own car. I had him pose for that. <laughs> because so here's the reality all right while yeah, elijah can definitely say definitely we did we car. got that car fixed because uh, he was there he helped he got his hands dirty the truth is we like didn't really terry and bill without the shop without the tools without the lift without knowing how much torque to put on the wrench without bill and terry while we did it we needed them for the we right otherwise we would have a car out front of our house on Jack's hashtag redneck lawn ornament. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And it just sits there because the ferry never comes and fixes it. That's why I don't live in an HOA neighborhood. But <laughs> the truth is there are some things though in life we can't do on our own. There are a lot of things that I can't fix this in my own power. And that was really never the plan. What Jesus wants to do is Jesus wants to turn my me problems into we problems and the stuff I'm trying to figure out but I can't the stuff that I'm trying to fix but I keep coming up short he's saying hey factor me into that equation bring me in get me involved invite me in and let's make this a we problem and when I do that's when miracles can happen everything changes when we get Jesus involved so check this out okay before we check this out uh just I want to know I, I want to start getting some information about mechanically structurally how this works um so you know i've got a financial problem uh some medical emergencies came up i had to take off of work and i'm going to be evicted from my apartment in less than 30 days okay that's a me problem this is not actually my problem giving an example. So that's a me problem. Now I'm listening to this sermon and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I want to make this a we problem and bring Jesus into it. Uh, how does this work then so that I will have confidence that I will not be evicted in 30 days? What, what are you, what are the steps to go from like your sermon to this is uh, now an active thing and I'm not going to be evicted anymore. What, what, do, what do we have to do here? I don't, I don't know if he's going to get there, but it just, this sounds like just magical thinking. 
if you just magic Jesus into the problem, then something magical will happen. Is is there is is there ever you know these these intervening steps of here's what has to happen, you know, throughout the the process of this? Is there a mechanism for this, or is it just magical thinking? I. I don't know, but it is exactly my problem. This example that he's literally just given about uh, the the car needing parts fitted to it. Jesus wasn't there. No. It wasn't Jesus who fitted the parts to it. He knew someone who knew what to do, and that someone who knew what to do helped him. The advantage of the church scenario in this story is that in a church, you're going to get a group of people who are single-minded on the worship of a manipulative bully god, and they're together in that room, there are going to be people who meet all sorts of different requirements. Yeah. I'm an IT professional. I have helped people with their IT skills because I know them through a church connection. That has happened in the past. It wasn't Jesus fixing their computer. That was me fixing the computer. The convenience of church was that I knew them. And this is exactly the same scenario here. How that fits to your question, there's going to have to be some kind of professional uh, financial expert involved in that kind of thing. Somebody's going to come, uh, certainly in the UK, I would expect that somebody in that kind of vulnerable situation would have somebody from social services meet them and talk with them. There won't be a church connection involved with that. Social services will be involved and will help talk it through and talk about alternative arrangements for living or something like that. That's not Jesus helping them. That's the government doing its job to See. help the vulnerable. That's how you spike the ball when it's served up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I could get used to this podcasting thing. So, um, right. So the story that he told, he, he gave us a mechanism. He told us exactly how it was. It wasn't just he ordered some parts and then he woke up the next morning and it was the car was fixed. No, there was, there was this mechanistic process uh, and we could see how it happened. There was no God in it. So it sounds like what he's saying, the we problem is, uh, in my example, would be me, social services, Jesus, and a payday loan. <laughs> right? So uh, all of that can happen without inserting the Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't understand where the Jesus part comes in to help that situation. And let's see. If within the last well, before few... we get there, there's okay. something that did also um, trigger me uh, during this bit that he, he was talking about. And it's this whole needing God in a crisis. Okay, not being able to afford 500 bucks to fix your car isn't a, isn't a major crisis. Okay, for some people it could be, but there are worse things. You can be, being evicted, that one is a much bigger you know, crisis. People not being able to eat in the afternoon on the side of a hill, that's even less important than not being able to afford 500 bucks for a garage to do your struts properly uh, on your car. But there's this whole mentality, and I remember it an awful lot from my Christianity, is the only way that you really properly connect with God or Jesus to help you through something is when you're low, when you're in the pits, when you're in desperate need. This is a manipulative aspect of Christianity. You know, if God is truly loving and truly exists and he needs to manipulate your scenario so that you're in dire straits, you're desperate, you're without money, you're wondering where your next meals come from, you're wondering if you're actually going to be able to sleep under a, a roof in the next couple of nights, 
you're genuinely worried about your own, not just your own sanity, but the own physicality of your life. You're in that genuine scenario of worry. And God has to put you into that scenario in order for you to be able to trust him. Really? Is that really the kind of God you're trying to sell to me? Is that really the kind of God you want me to worship? Is that really the kind of God that you think loves me? Really? Fuck that. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, in all seriousness, I'm, I am myself going through a personal crisis, and you know, I wish that there was a God uh, who would intervene. I am living in a one-bedroom apartment, and I don't have a pool table. Uh, we go to verse 10. Jesus said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Have the people sit down. Now, there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So that's probably about 20,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Woo. Some of you go to Olive Garden because of the free breadsticks. You know what I'm saying? This is what's happening right here. As much as they want. He did the same thing with the fish. It's all you can eat at Red Lobster. Thank you, Jesus. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled how many baskets? Twelve, twelve baskets. Why twelve? Because twelve disciples, right? I want each of you to have a disciple doggy stop, bag stop, to take. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Next time, if you're going to put me off with something like that, make sure I've got a mouthful of juice first because the audience will love it. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I've been practicing my deadpan. I don't... <laughs> um, but anyway, I will, I've been waiting for him to get to this point. Yes, 12 baskets. 12 disciples. That's evidence and it's real. No. It's That's evidence, evidence that it's a inserted. story. <laughs> yes. It's evidence of fiction, Bozo. Love Come it. on. <laughs> you see, 12 baskets. I, I do like his line, though. Uh, the disciple doggy bags. Uh, that was that was good. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I said uh, before we started that this was full of unfunny jokes. Thumbs up on that one. To your families to tell them what just happened with the pieces of the five barley loaves, little biscuits left over by those who had eaten them. Okay, we're going to review. Not all of us are math people, right? Some of us are pastors. So we're going to review. Five loaves plus two fish equals not enough. Right? And, and, and Philip tried to solve that problem and do that math. Andrew tried to solve that problem and do that math. But five loaves plus two fish is not enough food to feed 5,000 men, 20,000 people. It's insufficient. The problem is bigger than the solution. But, but check this out. Five loaves plus two fish plus Jesus. Right? Five loaves plus two fish plus Jesus. When you add Jesus into the equation, all of a sudden you're not enough becomes more than enough. You add Jesus into that same equation and all of a sudden what was not enough is now a miracle where it's a feast for 5,000 men and 12 disciple doggy bags to share with their friends and neighbors. I'm still trying to figure out the mechanism, though, because in my example, you know, it's me, it's my last $20, it's uh, rent due and eviction coming up, plus a payday loan. 
<clears throat> right? So what? where do we insert Jesus into that? Is he saying that I can insert Jesus and not do the loan? Is is that his contention here? Because that's not really how it works. He he in his example, he uh, he didn't insert Jesus. He inserted an auto mechanic with a shop. <laughs> right? So I, I don't I don't know where Jesus fit into that. I don't know where Jesus fit into my example. But here, while he's reading this Bible fiction, uh, you know, all you need is uh, five biscuits. Uh, and a couple of sardines and Jesus, and and that you know it's just that and Jesus is just the magic that we don't have wouldn't to explain. Been really, wouldn't it have been really awkward if he'd got those sardines and those canned things and they didn't have that twiddle thing to open the lid? That would have been really awkward, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> I just, I suspect they could have magic the. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, <clears throat> were these loaves um, fresh uh, or moldy? Uh, were were there people that were uh, gluten intolerant? Uh, you know, so did did this or also or vegan? Did this this is yeah. did this magically? Oh, vegans um, always messing up a good miracle, I tell you. Sure, I mean. Does, you know, some people who just maybe don't like fish, uh, did Jesus magic the taste so that, um, you know, they would like it with these 12 baskets of food that are left over? How where did, did that, the baskets how, come from? Did, where, where did the baskets come from? <laughs> where did the, yeah, who goes to a Sermon on the Mountainside carrying a basket? Let alone bring 12 a ba- of I, don't, them. I don't have anything in it, uh, but I'm just going to carry this basket just in case because you never know what's going to fall out of heaven. <laughs> I mean, just the other day, I got a couple of struts that just fell out of heaven. <laughs> I'm carrying a basket. Because that's what Jesus does when we allow him to do what only he can do. When we take what we have, okay, even though it's not enough, when we take what we have, even though it's insufficient, it can't fix our problem, it's not enough to solve our situation, but when, but when we take what we have and we give it to Jesus, our not enough becomes more than enough. Somebody's got to testify because not everybody believes it, right? When we take what we have and we give it to Jesus, our not enough becomes more than enough. And, and that's what he's wanting to do. That's how- okay. Is that the emotional reaction he was looking for when he says somebody's got to testify? That was, that was very anemic. I, so. Did you have any people reacting like that to your sermons? Okay, so let me, let me just take a moment of immodesty here. Some people say, what do you mean a moment? Anyway, I was pretty good. <laughs> so um, I knew how to ring out the amen. So there were very few times when I made an amen line that no one said amen for. That's that's awkward. Uh, when that happens, as a, as a it's like a comedian. You know, they they tell their big joke and they pause. And nothing, <laughs> you know. At at that point, you just want to hit the exit. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I started preaching when I was, uh, you know, before I was thirteen. Um, so I was, I became pretty good at understanding the dynamics of my particular church denomination. And you know, there's always an amen chorus up near the front, and they will bail you out. 
<laughs> <You know? laughs> so if if you do say something and it falls flat and someone was supposed to say it, someone will say amen uh, in, in the churches where I grew up. Now, these are black churches and white churches. There was no amen choir. Uh, so you had to you had to get your gratification differently uh, there. But this is a charismatic church he's at, I'm sure. People are supposed to be fainting in the aisles uh, at this point. And so he says, will somebody testify? And you get like crickets. It's very awkward. <laughs> this this tells me that someone in the audience is saying, yeah, but I just got evicted last week. <laughs> so. Miracles start. So whatever you're facing right now, the only math you need to know is that anything plus Jesus, it's enough. Anything, like whatever your situation, your problem plus Jesus, problem solved. Your hurt plus Jesus equals healing. Your addiction plus Jesus equals freedom. Your broken marriage plus Jesus equals hope. Your lack plus Jesus equals overflow. Whatever your situation, you know, your emptiness plus Jesus equals everything you need plus something to share. And this math works every time in every situation because Jesus is the difference. He's the answer. He's the integral integer in the equation. The question is, are you factoring him into your formula? Are you focused on what you can do? Are you inviting Jesus to do what only he can do? You know, when you take what you have and you give it to him, that's how miracles start and how you're not enough becomes more than enough. I recently had an opportunity to talk to a friend down in South Florida and he's, he works at a rehab center there. And he was sharing his story with me and I'm like, dude, your story is so powerful. I just, just jot it down for me because I want to share it. I want you to hear Mikey's story. There's a picture of, of Mikey. Good dude, man. He says this. I grew up in Rhode Island in a great family. They gave me everything I needed, but I broke my wrist my senior football season in 2006. I needed surgery and I was given pain medication that I eventually became addicted to. As the addiction to the meds progressed and my habit continued to grow, the pain medication stopped working. I was introduced to heroin. My life began to spiral. In 2009, I was headed to the University of Rhode Island on a baseball scholarship, still in the grips of a heroin addiction. Heroin was my only focus. Nothing else matters. And so I was kicked off the team my freshman year because I was unable to keep the proper GPA. My life began to spiral even more. 2014, I was getting on a plane to South Florida to check into my 17th treatment center at the age of 24 years old. In the grips of a heroin addiction, there was no hope in sight. Laying in bed, detoxing, cold sweats, body shaking, throwing up, just feeling like I was going to die. Suicide seemed like the best option. I began to reflect on my life. 17 treatment centers, homelessness, lost all my relationship with family and friends, heroin addiction. What was the point anymore? He says this, for the first time since I was a kid, I slowly got off the bed. I could barely hold myself up. I got on my knees and I prayed to God. I asked for his forgiveness. I asked for a chance at a happy, healthy life. I asked him to rid me of this disease of addiction. And on August 12th, 2014, I found God and I found sobriety. He says, I, uh, I've never picked up a drink or a drug since. 
and I get on my knees every morning and every night and pray to God just like that day in detox. Now, not only has God delivered me, but I've been working in the field of recovery for over four years and I help people with addiction every day. I travel around the country, I speak to youth, I share my struggles and I spread the message of hope that it is possible and God is the answer. He's the solution, the only solution. Come on, that's a great story of life change. Can I just, can can I just say cool story, bro? Um, seems like a proper time to insert that. Go ahead. Yeah, well, hopefully there's a name up there so we can probably Google this guy and uh, find out a little bit more. I, first of all, addiction is a terrible thing. You know, personally, I've encountered people who have struggled with that and it's has addiction has <laughs> the power to completely wreck an individual's life, wreck the lives of those around them. It's, uh, it's a terrible blight on, on both on the individuals and on the society around them. And I am genuinely pleased for this individual that he overcame his addiction. And more than that, he's actually in a scenario where he's helping others go over it. Wonderful. Sometimes former addicts are the best people to help people who are currently addicts get out of that. Great. I do worry that the some aspects of this story are omitted and some aspects of this story are emphasized to get the narrative that we've just heard. That is my concern always with something like that my experience of hearing testimonies in a christian environment is exactly that concern that people overemphasize the role of god of religion in their healing and they minimize the impacts of other things and of other people <coughs> 17 treatment centers is an awful lot it's an awful lot and often to overcome addiction it takes multiple times i don't think I think it's very rare that people actually overcome it in one hit. And so, and I also suspect that this time where he got down on his knees to pray, the story is told like it's the only time that idea occurred to him. I doubt that's the case. I bet you that he did it multiple times leading up to that point. And also, I bet you what else is omitted from here is the circumstances where he that he was in at that particular point. Was there somebody who actually helped him to get over it? Was he building on his past experience in the previous centres to just gradually get better and better at dealing with with coming off it? Because being that addicted at that, uh, what, 24, I think the age was, that sounds genuinely quite serious. It's a it's a very rapid descent into addiction. <laughs> and then that makes a very hard journey coming out of that addiction. So he probably went through a lot of time. I suspect some of those treatment centres are, are very soon after each other so i'm wondering how that 17 is has been counted so yeah there's genuinely loads of aspects from that story that are that we're not hearing about that i think in if we were to hear the full story in its context it would give a much clearer picture of what actually happened <coughs> so let me add a little bit to that um my brother i think i can say this out loud if i can't screw it uh my oldest brother has been uh, a drug addict since almost forever uh a very long time and uh, he's gone through probably more than 17 uh treatments uh he's done all the detoxing and things like that as well and after many of these occasions not just one of them uh he's gone through a period of sobriety and he's gone on to 
you know, work with drug rehab centers and help others uh, overcome addiction. Right. That's a great story. Uh, he's done that many times and been re-addicted many times because you know why he's a drug addict. Uh, and so even if the sobriety lasts a year, I, I, you know, I'm always happy for him, but I'm never ecstatic <laughs> because I, I understand the nature of this particular monkey. Um, it never gets off your back. Uh, not, not for terribly long. And so the thing that we are never going to hear from this preacher is the next time this person relapses. And, and there's a good chance there will be a next time. There's a good chance that through this 17 times, he has done this thing before where he has, you know, done well, he's been off for a while, he's uh, going on to help others, and then there's the relapse again. You know, but that was back at time number four or five or ten. Uh, so th it's this story is told, uh, you know, as a sort of magical thing after time number 17 when he finally came to God. And then you you brought up a very good point. He would have been on his knees to God the first time and the second time and the third time. <laughs> so uh, it sounds like what it took for this miracle was 17 prior treatments and detox and likely a lot of medication plus Jesus right I think we I think we could eliminate the Jesus part <laughs> you, know, you no. haven't you haven't given me the magic here you've just told me the story of every drug it uh, addict that ever lived because when we take what we have right even though it's not enough when we take what we have and we give it to Jesus our not enough becomes more than enough and it's not just enough for us but it's it's more than enough so that we have something to share and give back and that's not just a story that we read in the Bible that's that's real life today it's not just Mikey's story listen I'm not up here because I'm teaching you guys history I'm up here because I know a guy who's changing my life and I know what it's like to have Jesus come into my emotional life where I, I was out of control, anger and depression and, and, and for Jesus to come in and wake up with a peace that passes all understanding. That's a beautiful thing, man. I, I've seen him show up in my marriage when I, I just, everything I tried wasn't working, but my failure plus Jesus equals more than enough. And our marriage is so blessed and I love that girl and I might just pray right now and go kiss her. So just right this this person is in a very awkward position uh for when the announcement comes that he's getting a divorce right because because jesus these people get divorces all the time christians get divorces just as often as non-christians read the stats um it's so he's now saying you know jesus is blessing his marriage well okay until he doesn't Saying when he shows up, I've seen it financially. We've been trying to balance the books and it doesn't work. And unless God shows up and shows off, we're in trouble. But guess what? When we invite him in, he does. Yeah, when we invite him in and an accountant. I've seen it with my kids. I don't know. I, I mean, I have three teenagers. That's probably three too many sometimes. But I, we have three teenagers and I love them and I'm blessed. And, but there are times, right, where you, you struggle and you're trying to relate and connect and maybe you don't see 
what God is doing. And there's been times I want to drop that dad hammer, but instead we went and prayed and I've come out and, and that very same kid comes up to me and says, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I haven't been myself lately. So I'm working on it and God's working in me. So love you. And I'm just like, well, huh? Like, cause teenagers don't do that. That's Jesus. Sorry, right? Can like, we just, can because, we just stop there? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to ask. <laughs> sorry. I'm a parent of a teenager. I would never publicly talk. Sorry, let me rewind. I would never do, let alone publicly talk about dropping the dad hammer as a disciplinary measure. I know he's not talking about a physical thing. He's talking about laying down the law. I have said on Still Unbelievable in conversation with Andrew about my own teenage daughter, about how I relish the answer back? How about I encourage the answer back? How about I love and adore the answer back? Because that means she's her, not what I want her to be. And I'm getting bad vibes of what he's saying here. I'm getting vibes of the teenager must be molded to how I want them to be. Did you notice here, he said, the teenager came to him and said, I'm sorry, I've not been myself. When has he apologized to the teenager? Because one of the things that I've learned, and it was a painful lesson for me to learn, because I know I'm English, but I'm also imperfect. I've, I've had to learn that when I have an altercation with my daughter, where we come to, I was going to say come to blows, I don't mean come to blows, I mean where we have a, a disagreement and it ends up being raised voices. I have learned that often, sorry, every single time, I should apologize very quickly and very rapidly because I'm the one who should be better. I'm the one who should be setting an example. I'm the one who should have exemplary behavior. So if our conversation is degraded to that, that she is feeling unfree to be herself in front of me, then I am the one that's at fault, not her. So I really have a problem with the unsaid words in this parenting style here. Yeah, well, it kind of goes along with the misogynistic jokes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is what you would expect. Also, I don't believe this story uh, at all. No 16-year-old has ever come to a father and said, yeah, I haven't been uh, myself, but, but God has been working with me. Said, said any 16-year-old, <laughs> never. <laughs> when, when we do what we can do, we get what we can get, right? But when we give it to God, our, our not enough becomes more than enough. And I'm just saying, what, what in your life right now, what challenges are you facing? And maybe you're trying to fix it on your own, your own resources, your own intellect, your own capacity. Or are, you, are you trying to fix it on your own? Are you taking what you have and giving it to him? I think some of you are so focused on what you don't have, you know, that you're maybe failing to give him what you do have. Well, this isn't enough and I don't have enough. And, and just take what you have and give it to him. It's time to turn those me problems into we problems and invite him in. I don't know what test Jesus has you taken right now, but I do know he's the answer. I don't know what questions that are going on or what problems you're facing, but is there some area of your life where you're coming up short and realizing I'm not enough? I don't have enough. Hey, put it in his hands and watch him work. And he'll not only turn it around for you, 
but you'll be taking home doggy bags of blessings to share with the people around you because that's what Jesus does when we invite him in to do what only he can do. I don't know, you ever think about some of these miracles, it's like, why'd he do it that way? Right, if you're Jesus, I mean, if you have all power, I think, like, why does he do this miracle this way? He had options. We know for sure Satan tempted him. He says, hey, turn these stones to bread. So somehow Jesus, he could have done that. Even Satan knows that he could have just, I think that would have been a cooler miracle, personal opinion, right? You got all the disciples like, hey, we don't have enough bread. Oh yeah, watch this. Bread starts popping, stones just turn into bread, right? And Andrew, what's that smell? I don't know, Philip, smells like a bakery. Wow, Jesus, great job. You know, like, I just think that would be an amazing miracle. But he doesn't do it like that. Why? Because I think part of this miracle is, isn't just what Jesus wants to do. It's what he wants to do in us. Not just for us, right, but in us. And so he says, here's what I need from you. I need faith. I can do it, but here's what I need. I need some trust. I, I need you to take something and put it in my hands so that I, you can see what I can do with it. You know, and that's really the key to this miracle. It starts with something. Not enough. It starts with something, not much. But, but I believe that what Jesus wants to say to us today is, hey, that miracle that you're looking for, that you need, are you willing to trust me enough to give it all to me, to take what you've got and put it in my hands? And, and when we do that, that's when miracles can happen in our lives. I don't know what you're starting with today, but I do know that's not what Jesus wants you to finish with, right? There's more, way more, immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine more that he wants to do for you, but also more that he wants to do in you and through you. And so what he's saying to us is just, hey, take what you have, give it to me, and watch your not enough become more than enough. Put it in my hands if you need to do that today. This is, you know, church, man, Jesus comes and he hangs out with us. Two or more are gathered. And so if you need a miracle, he's your guy and he's here. And so what I want to encourage you to do is just, if you need it and you know it, just let him know. And as I think most of us just close our eyes and bow our head, if you know that this is for you today, that you didn't come here just needing a message about a miracle, you, you came here needing a miracle. Just, just stand up and let him know. How vapid and vacuous is that? Um, I, oh, uh, here, he's finishing though, I do if you have something you need to place in his hands, maybe because you need him to restore it or repair it. What does it. it mean to place it in his hands? What are you talking yeah. about? Maybe even resurrect it because it seems like it's too far gone, but he can do that. I'm just saying like he's right here. And, and if you invite him in to do what only he can do, you're going to see a miracle. And what does that mean to invite him in to do only what he can do? You've been going to church for the last 20 years. You've been doing that for what do you what different thing are you supposed to do now? I need a mechanism. In your life just stand up and let him know. Lord, I want to pray for you right now. Lord, thank you that you can that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And, and you didn't just do miracles back then. You do them today, and we need them, Lord. I want to thank you um, that you're willing, that you're able. And I want to thank you for those who are standing right now, because we're, we're standing because we need you, because we know what we have is not enough. And so we're coming to you, and we're just saying, Lord, take what I have, and, and take my not enough, and make take it more than enough. Do what only you can do. Take it all. 
I, I believe, Lord, some are probably standing because of maybe addiction. And in their own power, they cannot break the stronghold or the bonds of temptation and addiction. But, but where they've had failure, Lord, as they bring that to you, they can have freedom. And so just, just enter in and show them. Okay, he's at the end. This is stupid. I can't do it anymore. Um, this, okay. I'm impressed with you having a go. <laughs> <laughs> like I've had a go. Awesome t-shirt, dude. Awesome t-shirt. <laughs> this is my formal t-shirt. <laughs> Someone needs to get you a t-shirt with a jacket and tie print uh, on it. There you go. That that would be awesome. I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the first bite of this because I've been itching to do this since before I pressed play on this uh on this show i was i was just kind of i had a, a thought in my mind and i didn't know if he would get to it but i didn't think he would and he didn't so no disappointment there um <clears throat> you did bring up the the incident the quake and incident and loss of life that that happened uh as you were illustrating um real real needs as opposed to um, you know, things that are that are just wants or conveniences uh, this feeding of the 5,000 and you can also take the feeding of the 4,000 that seems like an impressive miracle I mean Jesus is feeding people it is not what Christians sometimes make it to be this is not a case of Jesus feeding the hungry Jesus never feeds the hungry. He never gives money to the poor. He never does any of the things that he commands others to do in that way. This 5,000 people were just people uh, at the, the, the equivalent of, you know, going to a church convention and it's lunchtime and there's no cafeteria. That's what this is. These aren't hungry, homeless, poor people who are desperate for their next meal. Not what this is at all. Jesus never addresses those people directly. He never gives anyone as much as a crust of bread who's actually hungry and doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. So, in the grand scheme of things, the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000 is about as trivial as it gets. It's extremely trivial. A more impressive miracle is uh, curing the, accidentally curing the woman with an issue of blood. That was, that was more impressive, or, or curing a leper. That's more impressive. This is a person with a real problem and a real need. These people are just at a church seminar uh, and didn't bring a basket. So if you want to talk to me about miracles, let's go to the Middle East or let's go to Africa or let's just go down the street uh, to the Taco Bell where uh, homeless people are hanging out asking people for free meals. Let's go there and you miracle them some food. You miracle them a house. 
you do something like that if you want to impress me. Uh, I know that Andrew is not going to like this, but don't even grow back an eye or a finger or a limb. I know you can't do it anyway, so don't don't bother. But don't those things are those things would be impressive, but they're they're not as important. Um, so save the hungry people. Go to a disaster site, and instead of uh, workers risking their lives going through rubble trying to find the one in a million uh, baby that survives for four days, just magic all of the people out of that rubble so that you you don't have to have any guesswork about who's under there. You don't have to risk more lives trying to figure that out. Do something like that. This man never addresses real, actual need. Go into a drug rehab center and clear it out because people are suddenly no longer addicted. Go into hospital ICUs. If you want to do healing miracles, we have got, uh, uh, we've got uh, emergency centers where there are people uh, who are desperately clinging to lives on machines. Empty them out with your prayer. Mm. Do, do that. Do, do that. You don't even need a camera. The hospitals report it. We'll report. I promise. I guarantee you it will not go unreported. Um, mm. Instead, miracles for Christians just become meaningless stunts. So even if real, I wouldn't be all that impressed because it was trivial. If you've got that kind of power at your disposal, Come and do something that is real and important. I will believe. I will certainly praise you, even if you're doing it by the power of the devil. Don't care. I'll still praise you because you did something worthwhile and important instead of some stupid stunt like taking a couple of sardines and loaves and feeding 5,000 people who didn't need it. Anyway, um, that's all. Yeah. The, the rest is yours. <laughs> Those were my words, really. I mean, there's people like Frank Turek on Twitter who make a big thing about um, what's so special about miracles is how rare they are. Okay, fine. I can engage with your thinking behind it, but I still call bullshit because of what David just said. You know, if I had access to that power, drive to the hospital would be my very next move. Sort them out. Get them healed. Get those people walking. Get rid of that cancer. You know, let that person be a productive member of society again. Because we know they want it. Why can't God do something about it? It's yeah. I I'm speechless, dude. I'm speechless. Okay. Um, no, I can't let you in quite that easy. Because uh, <laughs> look. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about miracles is because of, uh, I guess, a recent uh, show on Unbelievable or some some place where they referenced a miracle in your family's history that wasn't. Um, oh yes, so the the reporting of miracles. We we hinted at this a little bit when he was talking about the the guy who was cured from addiction. By the way, being cured from addiction is not a miracle. It's rare. Uh, and a lot of people who have been, quote unquote, cured from addiction uh, relapse, but you never hear about the relapse. Uh, there's no miracle 
involved in that. There's a lot of human process there. Uh, and so what you said is, you know, often when you hear these stories, you're not hearing the whole story. You have a story about not hearing the whole story and the reporting of miracles. And I, I know that you've given this story before, but I, I just want you to give it again for this audience. People are reporting miracles confidently um, as if they knew what happened and they don't. Uh, tell the audience what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, first of all, this comes with caveats because this, the main subject of this account is, is my mother. So the person who's dearest to me of everybody who has ever existed uh, on this planet, bar none. So it's a deeply personal uh, account. So there are details which I will not give. Please accept that because that's the case. It's my much loved mother. Her memory is a treasure to me. Um, and so I will not open myself up to some of the, the details of this. Please, please just accept that and, and bear with me on that. So I'm going to do this in reverse. I want to put you in a situation. As you know, it, it, I think it'll be more effective for me to be chronological on that. So I'm nine years old. I'm at boarding school and I get a letter from my dad say that there's been an incident uh, at home and um, my mother's in hospital and she's got two broken ribs but she'll she'll be okay um how do you tell a nine-year-old child who's away at boarding school that he nearly became an orphan you know there, there's a there, there's a problem there so for historical context we're living in a farm uh, outside Lusaka, Zambia. It's the late 70s. We're in the build-up towards the country that used to be Rhodesia becoming Zimbabwe because Zimbabwe's independence, I think, was 1980. So we're, we're in, the, in the throes of uh, the final era of uh, Rhodesia. People who are old enough to know, will, people who are old enough to remember these kinds of events will have an idea of the kind of political complexities that were going on. It was the death of the British rule at of, of that part of Africa at that time. Cecil Rhodes was in the news. He's mostly considered now to be a bit of a shitty racist, but you know he had two countries named after him, and the British Empire loved him. So there's all sorts of very complex political stuff going on at this point. Robert Mugabe is obviously on the scene as is Joshua and Como. So there is lots of stuff going on. White-skinned people running countries which belong to black people is a problem for this part of the world at this time in history. So we're living on this farm outside Lusaka in Zambia. Zambia had already been independent since 1964, so it had gone through more, of a, more than a decade of relative stability under Kenneth Coinder. Yeah, and now it's Rhodesia's turn to shake the shackles of uh, uh, empire and uh, become independent. And the British government and, uh, were 
reluctant to behave appropriately, let's put it that way. And so things became problematic. And so Kaunda offered sanctuary in Zambia to some of the rebel people who were fighting in Rhodesia for independence. They were euphemistically called freedom fighters at that period of time. Today, we would call them terrorists. In reality, they are black indigenous people who want autonomy in their own land, and they're trying to shake off the oppressive white British rule. And it becomes messy, it becomes bloody, and there are casualties. So the farm on which we're living gets raided by some of these freedom fighters, not by Zambian people, but by Rhodesian freedom fighters. And the white people on, living on this farm are accused of being spies because we're white, we speak with mostly English accents, and we're in the vicinity of this freedom fighter camp. And it was convenient to call us spies because there was mistrust, stack loads of mistrust. There were loads and loads of roadblocks. If we drove anywhere for any distance of time, we would meet a roadblock because roadblocks were a good way of just controlling where people live. So this is a scene. It's a very complex political scenario. And some listeners just won't understand what it is that I'm trying to convey here. I, I get that. It was complicated for me growing up in this environment. So these people raid the farm. My mother and two other people are kidnapped and taken away by, by these rebels. There are news stories that you can still find uh, about this. If you find the right newspaper and find the right archive, you can find some of the reporting on what was going on uh, at this time. So, um, so it was two men and my mother were removed from the farm uh, by force by these freedom fighters. I don't really know exactly what happened next. Uh, but there was discussions, there was um, communications, uh, Zambian police or Zambian army got involved and there was some kind of negotiation and they were set free. I don't think anybody, I don't think there's anybody alive today who actually knows the details of what happened in those hours. Um, but they were let free later on that day, but they were let free after being treated quite horrifically. Uh, I remember uh, in the in the years after one of the the three people, one of the gentlemen that was uh, kidnapped, was uh, still on a daily basis uh, soaking his feet in medicated hot water because they'd had an interface with a bayonet. Use your imagination to what that does to a man's foot. They were beaten. I was told they were hung upside down. So you imagine being hung upside down from a tree and being beaten with the butt of a gun. It's devastatingly unpleasant. Maybe the miracle is that my mother didn't have two, only had two broken ribs after that. I would say, fuck you. Um, so it was a deeply unpleasant experience for everybody involved and they were let free um, later on that day. And I have in my possession, because I found it after my mother died, that uh, she wrote a document for 10 years after this event. I've got four pages of it. No, you will never see it, listeners. This is not something that I'm going to share. Um, but where she writes down 
from memories some of the events that, that happened there. It is a traumatic read. Let me just say that. Um, some of you will have already appreciated this. Some of you will not. So let me just horrify you a bit more. She was a white woman being kidnapped by mostly men. Use your imagination. Um, so this event has hung over my family's history for the entirety of my life since I was nine years old. How can I not? It is a defining moment in my family's history. It was possibly a significant trigger in um, the, the demise of my parents' marriage. It probably wasn't massively helpful either. Um, I mean, the marriage probably wasn't massively help, healthy at that point anyway, but you know, how does a marriage survive a, an incident like that anyway? Um, and I, because I was young enough, never fully understood the horrors of what occurred that day. In fact, I never really fully understood the horrors that occurred that day until I was around about 30. Naivety, maybe. Who, who wants to hold that knowledge about their mother? It, um, it's a pain that I can't describe. Excuse me. And one individual said to me, suggested to me even, that the events on that farm that day were a punishment from God because of sin that was occurring on the farm. I was 10 years old. Who says that? So we roll walk forward 30 years and we're at my mum's funeral and a few people who have sent eulogies and thoughts about my mum and they re reference this event and um, one individual said the dignity with which she behaved afterwards how she still expressed her desire to love the people in Zambia and to stay working in Zambia because she worked as a um, as a healthcare worker in a hospital doing occupational therapy and later turned her hand to mental health. And she loved doing that kind of work. I had the pleasure of seeing her at work with those people and the patients that she cared for adored her because of how she cared for them. So one individual drew reference to how she behaved with dignity and with love after that event. Um, and how can I not smell with pride at my mum hearing that? And then somebody stands up and talks about this event and says that when they were kidnapped, the church immediately called a prayer meeting 
they didn't. And they got together and they they pray, prayed hard. And suddenly there was a bolt of thunder or, or, or lightning or, or something. I, I can't remember the exact details of what was said. And uh, it frightened the kidnappers because they thought it was the wrath of God and they let them all go. That's not what happened. My mum's document where she talks about this event makes no reference to that. What it does make a reference to is family back in England because this made international news. Um, I remember talking with my grandparents while they were still alive um, about this and they said that it was reported on the news that people had been kidnapped and they got a phone call, I think, from the Foreign Office to say that uh, my mother was involved in this kidnapping. So people back in England did know what was going on. I don't know how delayed the news was. Um, so there is reference in this document from my mum that she found out later that family in England had, had held, held a church meeting and um, had, had prayed. So there is that detail, but I, there isn't enough detail in the document and too much time has passed to be able to finalize chronologically when things happened. And but I suspect that with the way news went and the way communication went, that this prayer meeting would have been probably too late in the day for it to actually fit with the timeline of when this miracle should have happened. Um, so if you're listening here, you think, oh, there you go, see the, the miracle details, right? Well, actually, no, yeah, people prayed, but there was no, this whole report of the strike of thunder and uh, then being let go out of fear, that absolutely is not what happened. They were let go as a result of negotiation. Maybe there were threats. I can't remember. The, I think it was very, very late in the day by the time they were let go. So that's a synopsis. I'm going to spare further details um i could read the entirety of that document but i can't handle it and you're not going to get it so that's the story of that miracle so you can imagine what i felt like sitting there in that church listening to people talk about my mum and then this lie comes out across the church I could just sit all I, I bowed my head and I shook my head because I was actually seething with anger. I don't know how to respond with dignity to that at a memorial funeral event for somebody who was much loved and much treasured. Thank you for springing that on me, David. Yeah. I uh, love you as always. Happy to have your thoughts. I um, I've heard this story before. I did not know it would be this emotionally impactful. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Uh, people need to hear it. People need to know. Um, my reaction is <clears throat> first. I'm just. I'm sorry this kind of shitty thing has to happen at all. And I'm even sorrier that the Christian complex that was around you 
ended up treating it the way they did. This seems in keeping with every miracle claim that I've ever researched deeply. So first of all, it's, as you well know, it's hard to research miracle claims. Yeah. They're, they're told in a way that there is always some detail that you can't get at, you know, it's, they're practically unfalsifiable. Uh, the way they're told. And you can go all the way back to Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about 500 people seeing Jesus at once. He's, by the way, the only one in the Bible who knows about this. The gospel writers don't know about it. Um, and and he makes this claim that I've always found, even as a Christian, very interesting. He says, and some of them are still alive today. <laughs> okay, Paul, thank you. Can you give me the names of the ones that are still alive today? Where do they live? I, I would like to go and ask them because you've invited me to corroborate this story. How exactly do I do that? You cannot. If you were, if you were reading this at the time, you know, when it was fresh off of his pen, there would have been no way at all for you to corroborate this story. At the end of the day, no matter how truthy it sounds, it's just another unfalsifiable claim. And so, uh, you know, when, when, um, Craig Keener wrote his two volume big book of miracles, it's the same, same thing. Um, I haven't read the complete book. I've, I've skimmed some of the words and tried to read things about the book to the, the best of my ability. And whenever anyone tried to hunt down the, the whole miracle and get the full thing, it always, the story is always different. There's always some detail that makes it not a miracle when you, when you can dig in. And when I have independently researched miracle claims, which I, I used to do quite a bit because I was looking for a miracle. It, when you hunt it down all the way down to original documentation, it's not at all the miracle that people talk about. It is always like that. And so in, in this instance where uh, people are claiming this miracle in this is something that happened in your own life and is deeply personal to you, this is just one more event where the church has told a lie about a miracle that didn't happen, and yet Christians want us to believe the claim as if the claim is evidence. They're treating us as if we're stupid, as if we have never hunted down these stories to try to validate the claims. And we have never, ever, ever been able to do it. I, I can talk about people that I've been in private conversations with uh, about stuff like this, hunting down the claims, and they will always have to admit at some point, well, you know, and it, and it, it always ends up that way. And so you have to ask yourself, why does the church do this? Why do Christians do this? Why do they tell these stories? And I think it is less about persuading non-believers and more about persuading themselves. They need these stories. Christians need these stories. We non-Christians need evidence. The Christians just need the stories. They need these stories because they need a God 
that is really real and working. And the only place where God is real and working for the Christian is in stories. It's, it's in the Bible full of stories. It's in the gospel full of stories and modern day miracles are just stories. There's stories about miracles. These people who are desperately grasping for miracles and all the charismatic churches and so forth, they've never had one. They need it to be true. And so they make stories. And they and when someone tells a story, they grasp onto it. Can someone testify? Yes. Um it it keeps them going for another day so that they don't feel like they've wasted their lives in a lie. They need these stories desperately, and I'm sorry that uh your mother's trauma became the subject of one of them. And the only thing that I could advise is I I, I mean, there's nothing that I can do to make you not angry about this i would be angry forever um is is just to realize that the christians doing this are in greater need than you they need this story they need to think that god was acting in that situation they need to think that god is acting in this earthquake situation they need to think that god is acting in the plane crash situation they need this desperately, and so they will grasp any story. They will make any story, yeah. and I, I think that's I think that's where it is. And um, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't even have the bandwidth to hunt down details of miracle claims anymore. I used to do it a lot. Yeah. Uh, they've they've turned up false for me every time, and once again, I don't even think those stories are for us. I think it's like Christian apologetics. That's not for us either. It's for them because they, yes, Chris, there's something bizarre about the, the Christian mindset that needs these kinds of stories. And there is a follow-up to that. I didn't go on to unbelievable intending to tell this story, uh, but the context in which I told it, and you don't need me to tell you about it, Dave, because I'm pretty sure you understood the context in which I told the story was to illustrate that in a period of three decades, a mundane event can become translated into a miraculous story. That was the only reason why I told this story. I didn't plan it. It fitted with the context. And so I rolled it out as an example of this kind of thing to counter the claim that the gospel narratives must be true because of the temporal proximity in which they were written. And I could say, well, hang on a minute. Temporal proximity also produces false miracle accounts and there are a few people who've got that a few people have understood that but go on to the youtube channel for premier unbelievable and look at the 470 odd comments that are underneath that video of my appearance on unbelievable and there's more people referencing that miracle account sorry that story account than i expected i didn't think that quite the number of people would zone in on that 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 would Maybe I was naive. And a couple of people have got it. And um, there's one particular individual who really highlighted it and apologized uh, to me for the way that uh, has been responded to it and said that that was a, 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 a moment of realization for him in that, that episode. So I want to say thank you to, to that individual. But there were other people who mistakenly attributed my pain and my hurt from that story as being 
a functional part of my deconstruction and loss of faith. They not only have they completely missed the point of me telling that story, they have completely misunderstood the very brief bit of my story that I told. So let me just make it absolutely clear for the person who hasn't heard me say it yet. That story is not a feature of my deconstruction. That story is not why I left Christianity. I left Christianity in my late 30s. That story happened when I was nine. There was a long period of time. I did not doubt the existence of God as a result of that event. I did not doubt my Christianity as a result of that event. I thanked God that my mum was still around many, many times. And when I deconstructed, yes, I did analyse that event. But, and this is the important that miracle claim was news to me at the moment of her funeral. My deconstruction was almost gone by that point, effectively. So don't misread into that account, that false miracle, motivations onto my deconstruction that simply don't exist because you're doing me a disservice and you're further poisoning your own Christianity. And with that, I think uh, I, would, I think we're going to draw the curtain on this one. Uh, Matt, this is not a promise because I, I forget things from one day to the next, and we're talking about a month from now. Uh, but I would like to, and maybe you can remind me of this as time approaches, I would like to deal with the unbelievable episode with uh, Steingartner um, that happened... Um, just this weekend, yes. Yeah, I've not finished weekend. listening to it, but I've got some very strong thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a little bit in, and Josh has said a couple of things that have really wound me up. Christians need to stop talking about those of us who have left Christianity. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not going to listen to it until it gets closer to time, uh, so that my reactions can be fresh. But I, uh, when they announced that show, uh, that's one that I knew that I wanted to listen to, and I would. I would love to talk to you. Uh, about that one just know that by the time we talk again i will have completely forgotten that i said this <laughs> so it will not be a lie it will be alzheimer's i mean so <laughs> so just remind me <laughs> um of course and uh, and with that folks we will see you next time bye-bye well sir that is the show